0: with Ali Rizwi and Armin Navabi.
1: Welcome everybody to another episode of Secular Jihadist. Like My name is Ali Rizwi. Armin Navabi is uh, still uh, out right now. He's still on, on vacation. And he's going to be returning for, so for the next episode. He'll be coming back. Uh, but right now, uh, it's just me. And uh, I have a very special guest with me today. And uh, I'm very excited to speak to her. Um, uh, Janice Selby uh, is here. She is a registered counsellor uh, in Canada. Um, she is, uh, she, so she, she divorced her own religion after 40 years. Uh, she was an evangelical fundamentalist uh, Christian. And around the same time, she also divorced her husband, who was a pastor after nearly uh, uh, two decades together. Um, and uh, this was obviously devastating. And, and after this, uh, she went back to school. And she became a professional counselor. And uh, right now, her, she has a special interest, a personal interest in religious trauma syndrome. And uh, this is what drove her to develop uh, the online Divorcing Religion Workshop. And that's divorcingreligion.com. And she also uh, put together, this is really amazing, the kind of uh, things that you've, you've done for this, Janice, is uh, she put together the Conference on Religious Trauma. That's C-O-R-T 2020 dot com. Please go and check it out. This is a special conference that that, that focuses on religious trauma. It's being held in uh, April in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, in Canada. Uh, it also features Yasmin Muhammad, uh, a you know f- recent guest on this podcast and one of the one of the founding uh, the, the co-hosts of this podcast. And and you know she has a book out called Unveiled that many of you have read um, and praised. So. She's working with them as well. And as you know, Yasmin runs Free Hearts, Free Minds. So this is uh, really going to be one of the first uh, conferences of its kind um, that is going to focus on something that, and one of the reasons uh, we have Janice here is because this is something that we hear a lot about from Uh, ex-Muslims. Ex-Muslims face religious trauma around the world. We've had many of them here on this podcast Um, in a a way that... um, Is still very, very unfortunate. It's very life-threatening as well. So many of them are doing this at at, at risk to their lives. Um, So uh, we're going to go ahead and start. Uh, uh, Janice, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy you're here. I'm so glad to speak to you.
2: Thank you. I'm tickled to be here. It's just wonderful. Thanks for having me on. You're tickled to be here. And speaking of
1: tickled, I I didn't mention this, but I'm going to. Um, You're also a comedian, and I saw some of the... (laughs) I saw some of the stuff you uh you had on YouTube and it was pretty funny. Um, and that's I think I I would like to touch at some point on sure. that on, on the, the use of humor in in overcoming some of these things. Ooh, I have a It's, big it's comedy therapeutic comedy, uh set so, uh, up I'm really into. So uh, we'd love to talk about it. Yeah. So uh so let, let's start with um so you have a pretty compelling uh, life story. It's a very sad life story as well. Um, you know, so you're saying it was about, what, seven years ago that you divorced religion and then that also led to the divorce, uh, mm-hmm. your, your marriage, the end of your marriage. Mm-hmm. So can you, can you talk about how you grew up, uh, what your life was like and, and your journey, how, how sure. it led to where you are today?
2: Sure. Yeah. So I'm Canadian and I grew up in the Okanagan Valley in British Columbia, very beautiful place to call home. Uh, And my parents got saved, so they became Christians before they had any children. Uh, And so I was born into a house that was basically Pentecostal, so very evangelical, speaking in tongues, uh, you know, church a couple of times every weekend. Um, And we certainly had rules in the house about uh, what programs we could watch. We did have a TV, but what programs we could watch. Um, the clothing we wore, like my parents, we as a daughter, I was expected to be fairly modest. Um, mm-hmm. And I certainly was raised to believe that the Bible, everything in the Bible was true. They weren't, it wasn't mythology. They weren't just stories. This was the literal truth. Every word was true. Um, and so I believe that because this is what my parents, that I trusted, yeah. this is what they believed and this is what they taught. And my friends were church friends. And that's also what they believed and um so I went to public school but definitely never really fit in there uh just mm. because um well mostly I was worried that my classmates were going to hell and I would try and witness to them I cared very much for their eternal lives and that does not make you really popular at parties just saying oh, people okay. find that pretty pretty I can yeah. walking around with a big bible tucked into your arm there um <laughs> so that was um that was really my schooling was like that and then in my late teens i i wandered away had some uh, freedom you know checked out uh, what life was like a little bit on the outside but still you know never went like whole hog but uh then eventually in my early 20s i had a reconversion born again experience of my own and and I never looked back from that point. Then I was, then I became even much more fundamentalist than my parents were, and only saw the world in very black and white terms. My relationship with my siblings, who had walked away from the faith long ago, um, became quite shallow, you know, almost mm-hmm. non-existent. And then I married uh, a fellow. Our pastor introduced us, and. Um, this man was what we call an apologist. So he really spent a lot of time studying and was trying to give, always ready to give a reason for his faith, for why he believed. And so I really admired that. Um,
1: yeah,
2: and, he, and he's a good man, a kind man. Uh, and so we married and moved to a small southern Alberta town where he went to Bible college And my job, of course, was to be the keeper of the home. So we had two small daughters at that time. uh, And I began homeschooling them. Um, The longer we were on the campus, the narrower my views became and my world became. It was quite a conservative campus. And then I would see people coming into the store, like the grocery store. So it was mostly a Christian town. It really only existed because of the Bible college. And I'd see right. these women coming in, and they would be wearing head coverings. And for, for non-Muslim women to be wearing head coverings, I mean, you're basically thinking they're, they're Amish, right? Yeah. Um, and so uh, at, at one point, I went up and asked one of them about it. And, and she explained to me that it was in the Bible, in the New Testament, and And so I went home and was looking through my Bible again and thought, you know what, that is in the New Testament. And I don't see that we're excused from that. Uh, So I think maybe everybody else is just not being very obedient to scripture. And I really was drawn to rules. Rules were my comfort zone, because I grew up in a home with lots of rules. And my dad Uh, also is quite volatile emotionally and not really healthy mentally and so we had to learn rules from quite early on to avoid punishment. So I started exploring um, the ideas that this lady was talking about, submission, headship, uh, more and more rules and I just felt so comfortable and felt so certain this is the true way that God wants us to live and so I asked my husband who's no longer my husband, by the way. I asked him if he minded if I would start wearing a head covering. And we had already given up TV by this point. And he thought it was fine because it was scriptural. Um, And at that point, I just was making my circle ever smaller for the people that I allowed into my life. And no one was forcing me to do it. Certainly my husband, who was, was a pretty relaxed fellow, he was not the one insisting. On these behaviors it was rooted in my own unhealthy childhood and right. um, so yeah that really that got me uh, going down the rabbit hole of fundamentalism and then of course homeschooling that's also very reinforced because a lot of the homeschool community are fundamentalist Christians um, so almost trying to outdo each other with their holiness and with how closely they can stick to the rules of the Bible and whose children can learn and recite the most Bible verses and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That, yeah, that sounds so familiar. I mean, especially most obviously the head covering, it's really interesting because you're you're absolutely right. I mean, that head covering um, is uh, prescribed in the new Testament. Um, What's interesting is in, in the Quran, it's not as obvious. Like it doesn't actually say it as explicitly. As it does in the New Testament, uh, there's um, a, a, there's a direction to, uh, the, you know, Muhammad's wives that they should c- cover themselves and pull their cloaks over their bosom and so on, mm-hmm. uh, their head covers over their bosom, and mm-hmm. it's uh, I think it's in Surah 33, but um, it is in the Hadith in the, the this other sort of collection of uh, traditions of the Prophet, and,
2: mm-hmm. and that's
1: where it comes from. But so it, it is. Uh, interesting that, I mean, it's not just a head covering, but um, everything else you're talking about, the, the fundamentalism, taking the scriptural word literally, mm-hmm. uh, this is something I think a lot of people in the uh, Muslim community and, and the ex-Muslim community will probably relate to.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, and so, i was very so, sincere, deeply sincere yeah. about it. I I absolutely believed it. I had tremendous concern for my fellow humans whom I thought mm-hmm. were destined for hell. Um, So it wasn't definitely was not just some sort of act. This was and I by then I'd been a Christian pretty much my whole life because I was raised in it from the time I was in the cradle. So to me, God and Jesus were very real. I could not imagine going through an hour, let alone a day without praying or praising or encouraging others, admonishing people with scripture, that was totally enmeshed with my uh, identity.
1: Yeah. Have, have you um, uh, spoken to uh, Nate Phelps and, and Megan Roper Phelps? The...
2: Nate is another speaker at our conference, at the Conference on Reloaded. Oh, conference.
1: this is amazing. Okay, I'm, I'm <laughs> definitely going to come down here. Yeah, Because, yeah, I, I love Nate. I've spoken at his uh, at his conference a couple of times. And, and for those who, who don't know uh, what I'm talking about, Nate Phelps is, is a son of um, Fred Phelps, who, who was the uh, founder of a Church, so a mentalist organization. But uh, I, I had heard I've heard him speak actually very similarly about his childhood and. He he is probably one of the most compelling speakers I know when he when he tells the stories of what he went through as a child and the whole family and, and all of the abuse. It is it's absolutely heartbreaking. Um so yeah, so I I gotta say this again, court C O R T 2020.com. Uh mm-hmm. go there, Yasmin Mohammed, Nate Phelps, um Janice, you know, you're all gonna be speakers there. Um I I mean this is this is great. So so you uh so you grew up uh, you became born again you became even more fundamentalist than your parents you said uh before we go on to how you left all this you said that your your siblings left the faith long ago yes Uh, so why did that happen uh how and how did your parents react to it Mm -hmm. when they did it
2: well i'm the youngest of four children so three of us biologically born and then my sister I call her my sister, she's um, First Nations Indigenous in Canada, and she was part of the Sixties Scoop. So uh, evangelical white families were encouraged to adopt and foster uh, First Nations children who were essentially kidnapped, ripped off of reserves, right, and placed in these families. So that's how my sister came to live with us, the Sixties Scoop. So I don't know that she ever believed any of it. I can't even imagine the trauma that she experienced. But uh, my brothers certainly walked away in their teens. And being the youngest, I saw the pain, the tremendous pain that that caused my parents. And for sure, that had a role in me determining that I would not do that. I would not cause my parents that kind of pain. I would be the golden child. Um, So that's... That's kind of how that happened. Yeah. And, and then, like, I'm mm-hmm, sorry. Oh, no, I was saying,
1: did your parents, uh, uh, did their relationship with your siblings survive or did they just become distant after that?
2: My mom has um, generally been able to maintain a fairly loose grip on her faith. I mean, I remember her saying to me through the years eat the meat and spit out the bones. Like she she was never, she's not the diehard fundy that my dad is. So we always felt that my father's love was conditional. Um, uh-huh. And that is true. And he would deny that and say it's not true. But um, it certainly is true. So, so we know that, and we do, we still all have relationships with our parents. Um, but they are a lot more shallow than they would be if we were still... Mm part of them you can see i have a steve my cat just
1: oh that's your cat so yeah <laughs> for, for those <laughs> for, for those who uh who are listening to this on audio only and you're not watching the video um janice's cat just came in it's, just, it's adorable uh, so <laughs> so um okay so you uh, you become a born again uh christian and then and then you get married and uh, you have children and you're wearing the head cover and uh, you know, you're sort of isolating yourself from, mm-hmm. from the community mm-hmm. in a way, a narrower circle. When, what what causes, was it a gradual process that caused you to leave? Um, or was it sort of one moment, one incident? How, how did that transition right. happen?
2: Yeah, great question. Um, it was many things, one on top of another. So part of the reason that I was so eager to adopt the head covering, uh, was because my marriage was difficult, even though my, my husband, uh, my ex-husband, he, he is a good person. And actually we have retained quite a beautiful friendship, but our relationship was, um, difficult. We're very, very different people. And, um, so I felt that wearing the head covering would be a better reminder to me that my place was to submit to my husband because he's a uh, more of a, A meek type of person a gentle and quiet person and I'm more outgoing and so we always had this tension and this strain in our marriage and I chafed at I chafed at the thought that even though we were both adults he got to we had to do everything he wanted because scripturally that's how it goes the man is the head of the house and the woman is there to serve and to train up her children and that's it Um, and so that definitely weighed on me throughout our marriage and then we had uh, a couple years that were just very rough he was pastoring and it wasn't going well we were having a lot of friction a lot of trouble with the church my parents split up after 43 years and that was shocking and then uh, my nephew actually um, killed somebody my very my young nephew in his teens and uh, so that then there was the court case and so it was a lot of trauma and then our youngest daughter uh, was diagnosed with a life-threatening illness and even though we're in Canada oh. um, it was still very expensive to pay for what she needed and that that uh, played a role in us then going bankrupt so all those things happened in about a two-year span without even time oh. to breathe and catch our breath and 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 really was so disappointed. We were not being supported by our church family at all. They were, it was like just radio silence. They were not there for us. It was very painful. And that's when I started to think, you know, I have a bet on the wrong horse. This is not right. I don't know anyone else who has tried to live as closely to the scripture as I have uh, and who is just... Having nothing but a terrible time, every calamity, uh, I mean other than job, I guess, but um yeah. it really was yeah. so so painful, and it just made me think, no, if this is how God rewards his faithful, i don't I don't want part of it, but it but it was so such a terrifying thought for someone who had never had doubts before. Mm-hmm. and I remember. One day, my husband was at work and the children were at school and I snuck across the street. There is a used bookstore there. And (laughs) there was a there was a like a closet in the back where they kept the books that not everybody was supposed to see. There was a curtain in front and it said uh, occult books, occult and alternative religions. And I thought. I'm going to go in there and see what happens. And I was so scared to go in there. And I pulled back the curtain and I fully expected lightning. And there was no lightning. But my, my heart was pounding. And I'm looking around for some kind of book that can teach me something, but not immediately send me to hell. So I finally found a book that seemed kind of like a textbook looking at some different religions. And I asked the cashier for a brown paper bag because I was so worried that anybody might see me walking out with this book. And I ran home with it across the street and I put it in the safest place I could think of, which was my underwear drawer because I knew God would not even look in there. And that book stayed (laughs) in there. (laughs) (laughs) Which book was this? Which book Um, was it? I think it was called In the Path of the Masters. And it was about Buddhism and Islam and... fusionism and christianity and it was very dry it was a very dry book but uh i i i went through it a little bit at a time and it kind of gave me more courage and it made me think okay smarter people than me have questioned uh this whole thing um and then eventually i built up my courage and went back and started looking at uh other books and then uh and I'll started wearing shorter skirts and started wearing makeup and boy, TV and cable came back. And next thing you know, I'm getting tattoos and my kids had a front row seat to that.
1: Whole uh, thing. The, the, the head cover, the head covering was gone.
2: Gone. gone. With wind. Yep. Yeah. Buried. I buried uh, one of them. Mm-hmm. Cause it's important so, to have a releasing ceremony when you let go of yeah. things like that.
1: That's uh, so it's interesting. You, and I, so I have, in my book, I wrote about an experience uh, that I had with my um, my aunt, my, my mother's sister. Uh, and I was around five years old when, when her first daughter, who's three, uh, died of childhood leukemia. So this oh, is in yeah. the late 70s, early, early 80s when, uh, you know, now childhood leukemia, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. It's pretty yes. much curable. Yes. Uh, at that time, it wasn't. And so her daughter died of it. And so a year later, and she was obviously devastated. Yeah. A year later, she had another daughter. And then her daughter, at the same age, at the age of three, uh, was diagnosed with the same illness. No. Oh, my goodness. So, so, you know, I I would, um, sorry. Oh, I think you froze for a second. Okay, no, you're back.
2: You, yeah, I can hear you yeah. and I heard your story. That's just devastating.
1: Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I it was it was terrible and and I mean obviously the whole family was very involved in this cuz you know yeah. she she was my first cousin. Um Dear. and I at that time, I think w- when I was uh, when uh, the the first one uh my my cousin was dying at, at the time. I was in the room, the whole family was in the room. She she was at home and so I remember asking my father, and I, I wrote about this in the book, I, I asked him, I was like, you know, what's happening? And, you know, cancer death, it's just as painful for a, a child as it is for an adult. It doesn't discriminate based on age. And, and so we're watching this, and it's its devastating. I never forgot that. And I think I was only five and asked my father, said, what's happening? He said, well, she's going back to God. You know, God's taking her uh, back to stay with him. And and then I saw my uh my aunt and my mom were, they're reading from the Quran and they had, you know, crying. And, and so I said, what are they doing? And then he said, well, they're praying and they're, they're basically, they're just asking God not to take her away. And then I'm watching this child in agony and I'm thinking, this is like a tug of war where you have, you want to keep her. And on the other side, there's a sadist. And that was my introduction, my first real wow. introduction to God. Now, I grew up in a Muslim family. Uh, Pax- P- Pakistani Muslim family growing up in Saudi Arabia. Okay, So I was surrounded by Islam and this event happened in England. So my aunt lived in England and we were there for just a little bit while this was going on. And um, i that was kind of my introduction to skepticism. Uh-huh. And as I grew older, i this is something, that part of it I could never make sense of. But uh, when I was writing the book, I talked to my aunt, you know, and I told her that I was putting the story in the book and how this was a major sort of catalyst and, and, uh, this uh, it initiated me into skepticism. Now with her, it did the opposite. Yeah. It turned her. Yeah. You know, when she, she had that night, I really tried to understand, and I really respect her for, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons. I mean, she's a, she's a really, really brilliant woman. And I, we always had these interesting conversations uh, she recently died, unfortunately too. But, mm. um, she, for her, what it did was it made her even more faithful. Mm-hmm. Uh, she became just a devoutly religious. Um, I, I think she had this hope that she would meet her daughters again mm-hmm. in the afterlife. But it was so strange to me that the same incident of something so devastating, that devastating loss, would mean something completely different to me and her. And she looked at it as a test. And I'm, I'm wondering if that, you know, when you, when you were going through this I and mean, when you go through a tough time, it is a really difficult test. But what we're taught when we're indoctrinated into religion mm-hmm. is that, you know, well, if you go through a rough time, this is a test from God. It's a test of your faith. Did you ever think that? And, and when you were going and buying this book in the, in the brown paper back? Um, (laughs) did you ever feel that you might be failing the test or Mm she should stick it out for a little bit longer?
2: Yeah, for sure. When, um, during that really troubling couple of years when so many traumas were befalling our family, that the first two or three things, uh, you know, I, I thought, okay, well, maybe, or it's a test, or God is refining me. Um, But then as, as more and more came, and finally, then with my daughter receiving this diagnosis, um, I just, it, it, that is what I needed to break through my cognitive dissonance, right? Mm -hmm. So I had all of my identity was enmeshed with my um, religious beliefs. So to let go of it, uh, was terrifying. It was embarrassing. Uh, I mean, there were people that I had led to Jesus, right. And I had given, I had given my time. I had given my money. I hadn't gone to, um, university. Uh, I had put everything on hold, you know, so to speak, um, for this, uh, for this religion and believed that it was all for such a divine purpose. So, um, when I had the realization that uh, that's just not the case. And and everything didn't fall away at once. Like, I didn't then automatically become an atheist. I did what a lot of uh, fundamentalist Christians do when they leave. They either, first they become kind of progressive, where they're saying, okay, well, God doesn't really hate gay people, and I, maybe I won't go to that church where he hates all the gay yeah. people. I'll go to this other Everything's church. Everything's
1: metaphorical. Right? And, yeah, and yeah, then
2: yeah. I moved from that to... Uh, new age. And, you know, well, let's look at um Buddhism. And, oh, I grew dreadlocks. Like I say, I got my tattoos, um, mm-hmm. hanging out with the whole vegan crowd, doing the yoga, doing the hot yoga. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was all, it was all just steps on my journey. And then eventually, mm-hmm. I got to a point uh where I just didn't need any of it. And I was and that was hard, too, because part of my identity had been that I was a spiritual person. And even when I wasn't a Christian anymore, I still, pardon me, thought of myself as a as a spiritual person. Right. Um, and then when I didn't have that, and then I was no longer married anymore either. So all these bits of my identity, you know, being um, knocked off all along the way.
1: This is so that's... Um... Interesting. So so you had, you know, when the shirts got the, the the skirts got shorter and the TV came back and the head covering went. How was your so this was it seems like it was a step-by-step process. And how how was your husband at the time processing this? So was it right. were you already divorced by this mm-hmm. point? Um
2: <clears throat> so our marriage had definitely been on shaky ground for probably at least five years leading up to all that. Uh, And for him, uh, a really big deal was when his dream of being in ministry, his dream of being a pastor did not work out. That was the death of a dream was just, it was so shattering for him. Mm -hmm. Um, And that really added his depression, you know, added a lot to the difficulty. And then um, when our daughter was, uh, diagnosed too. We just were just like in tatters, just kind of hanging on there. Um, so finally, when it ga- came to the point that um, that we were going to separate, and it was heartbreaking because we we both did still love each other, uh, oh. but we knew. And so I had left. I was embracing the new age stuff. He wasn't really embracing anything. He wasn't sure what he thought. He wasn't ready to throw in the towel. On religion but he still he wasn't attending um, services or anything at that point but we were uh, kind of going in different directions Um, and then uh, we we walked through our divorce slowly we weren't in a big hurry to do it and we wanted to be as gentle with one another as possible and we just cared very much for our daughters who were in their uh, teens at that time and um i wouldn't change it uh it's the friendship that we have now is such a genuine friendship because we don't it's we're not friends because we have to be friends we're friends because we choose to be friends and and now he he is uh quite secular himself as well but he comes and participates when my partner and i do family dinners he comes over and he's a part of it and uh, it's just i'm extremely fortunate (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> no, that, that, sounds, that sounds wonderful. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that things, I mean, they kind of turn it's, it's interesting when you were, uh, you know, you were going through this, uh, you were struggling through this time and you're, I guess it wasn't just a church community. It's like, you know, what, is this what God is doing? Is this what Jesus is doing? And then uh, you leave it all and, and suddenly things seem to start working out.
2: yeah so my my life does not look anything like i pictured I, i would never i i actually would have thought that i would have died before i would have relinquished my faith and there's this christian book called fox's book of martyrs really depressing book uh looking at all through the ages christians who were martyred for their faith yeah i loved that book i read that book to my children like, I, wow. I was doing, you know, ready to do drills with them. Okay, what do you do if you're in a store and a man comes in with a gun and he's going to shoot you? Uh, you know, if he asks if you're a Christian, you have to say yes, even if it means he's going to shoot you, then you're just going to go to heaven. Like, this is how totally wacko I was, how totally fundamentalist. and, Gosh, and it brainless. sounds so familiar. Yes.
1: Yeah, It's it sounds so... This, I I can bet so many people right now, um, so much of our audience, the ex-Muslim community, um, it's the secular Muslim community, just kind of listening and, and relating to everything that you're saying. Um, so, so you finish, and then, so now, so then what you do is you decide to go back to school, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you've had this sort of incredible experience and this incredible journey, and you come out and, and you... Inside, okay, I'm going to go back to school then you're going to go into and you're going to study and become a counselor. Mm-hmm. And and you're you're registered. You're you're yeah. uh, you know, I, I read about you on psychology today. I mean, you're you're, <laughs> you're on there uh, as a counselor who mm-hmm. um, works with people who have been through experiences like yourself. Um, mm-hmm. d- uh, wh- what made you decide to go into into this field?
2: I have always been drawn to psychology, and I've always been very much a people person and a lover of stories. I love listening to other people's stories. And oh. I think um, growing up in a home with a decidedly unhealthy parent gave me some really incredible skills. I can pick up on people's emotions very, very quickly. Uh, I can help to diffuse situations Fairly quickly, Um, and and I want to know what's hurting people. I want to know how can I help. So it made sense for me to choose counseling. Now at that time, when I deconverted or deconstructed, however you like to say, I didn't know anyone else like me. I didn't know anyone who had believed as devoutly for as long as I did, and had walked away from it. So I felt extremely alone, very isolated. I, I'd sit at the computer, and tr- I wouldn't even know what to type in. Like, tears would be streaming down my, my face, and I'd be typing in, I, I think I'm not a Christian anymore, or I lost my faith. But there there weren't these, there weren't podcasts. Uh, mm. There was very little like that. Eventually, um, I found Marlene Winnell. Do you know who Dr. Winnell is? She wrote no. an important book yeah she wrote uh, you're going to know about her she wrote a book called leaving the fold and oh uh, i've heard Dr. of the Winnell, book yes yeah she's also work she's one of our keynote speakers and and her book has been such an essential help to so many people who have left fundamentalist religions of all stripes not just christianity um so i found marlene uh i saw some video clips she was on cnn and something else and then i saw that she does retreats in california and i thought i think i better go uh, and uh, interact with this lady and sh- she was so helpful to me and just learning connecting with other people who had been through similar things and then now i found suddenly i had these words so all along i had been doing research and taking notes and trying to sort out exactly what had happened to me and psychologically, how had I fallen prey to this and how could I protect myself against it happening again? And then I read um, Leaving the Fold and started uh, interacting with Marlene Um, and I've never looked back and that I knew from then on that this working with people who are in recovery from religious trauma was what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm.
1: And uh, so, I, I think it's so sorely needed. I, I know that it feels like there would be a lot of services like this out there, but uh, there, there aren't enough. Uh, I, in a lot of cases, uh, what happens is that uh, for the longest, I've been working with um, people people who left Islam for you know, over a decade now. And uh, most of, a lot of times they would write to me, there are some support groups uh, for them, uh, they would go like ex-Muslims in North America is one uh, where they would go in and they can meet other like-minded people. Uh, so there's in in a way it's kind of group therapy. Everybody shares their stories. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or the Muslim-ish is another group like that. Uh, but uh, really, the first first group that was uh, I think that and, and I, I should mention uh, Mariam Namazi and the Council of Ex-Muslims of Britain really kind of started it all a lot of people used to go there and just online forums. The, the internet and social media did oh, wonders for this. Yes. Did wonders for it. Yeah. Very um,
2: helpful.
1: But, but the first organization I think that I came across that, that did this, there are a couple of them. Uh, one is free, free hearts, free, free minds. That's the one with, uh, that, uh, Yasmin Muhammad works with, uh, Jimmy mm-hmm. Bangash, who's also, you know, a really good friend who's been here on this podcast several times. He's, he's the, uh, Uh, He's a gay ex-Muslim, the British-Pakistani gay ex-Muslim. And uh, also, Imtiaz Shams is doing, he has a a group uh, in the UK called uh, Faith to Faithless. Oh, Um, wow. Yeah, and they they also do this this kind of work. But just in terms of um, having registered uh, counselors and therapists to help people, to guide people through this, is just something that I think is so sorely needed uh, right
2: now. I also would direct your your listeners and your watchers to Recovering From Religion, Uh, RecoveringFromReligion.org. And they also, a subsidiary of that is um, Secular Therapy uh, and uh, Secular Therapists. And they're part of, uh, they're hosting, they're part of hosting our conference there, the Secular Therapy Project. Um, But RecoveringFromReligion.org and people from all different uh, backgrounds, including Islam um, and they can get free, free help there and lots of resources. Mm-hmm.
1: So, so when you uh, do we when you started this uh, therapy, I, where, I, I, what? So initially, what kind of uh, patients did you get? And was it? I mean, did you? I guess was there a lot of demand for it from the get go, or is it something that you had to uh, build up sort of slowly?
2: I. I wasn't. So initially, um, my therapy, I was seeing, uh, I was doing some couple therapy, working with couples. uh, But also, I was just seeing singles, anybody who felt like they needed a counselor. And, you know, religion didn't factor into it. But I definitely started to see a pattern had a lot of uh, ex Jehovah's Witnesses who ended up coming to me. And of course, they're a group that Really struggles. There's a lot of shunning um, if you leave the JW um, faith, and it's very heartbreaking. Um, and then it wasn't until uh, last year when I developed my online workshop, the Divorcing Religion Workshop. And since I started doing that, I've had people come through who were, um, you know, former Orthodox Jews. Uh, former Catholics, um, like, you know, ex-priests, this type of thing, and a lot of uh, former independent fundamentalist Baptists. So just there's a whole bunch of people out there who are really hurting. And so I also really direct people to different podcasts because they can be such a help to hear other people's stories and hear about people who've made it, Um, just to help you know you're not alone. Like you said, the Internet has been tremendous. For this.
1: Yeah, and so uh, how, how does it? Uh, what do you find is the? Because I would think, uh, and you know, just having been through this somewhat my, myself, although I, I didn't come from a fundamentalist background, and I've i quoted Phil Zuckerman, who uh, has been a guest on this podcast as well in the past. Uh, he wrote, um, you know, he's written several great books, uh, but uh, he talked about once about uh, mild apostasy versus transformative apostasy. Um, where he said that, you know, there there are some people who are kind of, they're mild apostates. They grew up in families like mine, for instance, uh, that were relatively liberal, moderate, even though we were living in Saudi Arabia. Uh, My parents were Western-educated professors. uh, And uh, when I I left, it wasn't really, I I didn't really have a traumatic religious upbringing. uh, Mm. But uh, so for me, you know, even though I... Left, I still like some of the cultural elements, you know, like mm-hmm. secular Jews. You know, you have the holidays, and right. in our case, we <laughs> right. have Eid, and you yeah. know, we we get we do the Christmas tree too, even though we never had grew up Christian or anything. Right. Uh, we uh, do uh, the Ramadan, the feast, because there's a lot of great food. I mean, right, to say no to that. Um, we just kind of do it with, without the religion. Uh, on the other hand, um, and I, I still, you know, how some people still enjoy uh, art. It's like sort of Christian art and they, uh, Christian, uh, many other things like that. In the same way, when I hear the prayer call, it still sounds alluring to me. Like it it sounds Mm -hmm. peaceful and calming, even though I know that it doesn't really mean anything.
2: Right.
1: On the other hand, you talk to somebody like Yasmin, right, who came from a very fundamentalist uh, background, much like your own um, fundamentalist Islamic background, uh, forced to fast like literally starved by, by parents um, forced to cover up and be modest, uh, you know, a, abused, physically abused. If she didn't,
2: uh,
1: I mean, you, you know, her story, uh, you know, for, for her hearing that, you know, a lot of these associations were triggering. And right? yes. so the, many times I would speak about, uh, you know, I still kind of like the Eid holidays because all my right. family gets together. And, and, you know, in, in, I, I don't know specifically about Eden. I don't want to speak for her on that, but I, it, in, the, in a similar kind of vein, she would think, well, you know, I had it good. I was privileged, which is true. Uh, you know, I was compared to uh, what she went through. Right. So so her, hers would be more transformative apostasy right. where people, they, you know, these people, they wouldn't want to have anything to do with it. Like even the slightest reminder of it can often uh, trigger them really badly. Mm-hmm. Um so, uh, there uh, there is, uh, I think, I, 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 I'm just going to say one more thing. I, I feel like there's there's two elements of this. One is the sort of, w- what you talked about, which was the um, uh, Im- emotional trauma of, you know, suddenly, you know, you've had this moral compass your whole life, suddenly it's ripped out from under you, and right. what are you going to do? How are you going to build your identity again? How are you going to build your relationships with your community mm-hmm. and, you know your role as as a mother as a, as a human being is everything uh, how do you piece that back together and then, on the other hand, this question's about well you know i had I believed in the afterlife, but now what do I do? Is it all gonna like, there's what kinds of issues yeah. Yeah. Uh, feature most prominently among the people that you've talked to in, in terms right. of trauma
2: yeah, great that's a great question um, I find grief work uh is something that our community really needs to know about and and um participate in because there are so many losses when you lose your faith if you've especially if you've come out of a fundamentalist background there are just different aspects of grief and things that we, we can't mourn what we don't acknowledge so I have my clients at some point make out a list of all of their losses related to religion every the things they lost when they were in religion so things they were denied participating in or whatever else it is and then again the things that they lost Religious trauma syndrome is it encompasses those losses, the losses suffered in the religion, and then the losses suffered when you leave. And so I, I do um, with my clients spend time uh, going through grief and the grieving process, and then we can release some of that energy. and And anger is part of grief, also. It's a very legitimate part of grief, but we don't want to get stuck in that angry place. We don't. There's an there's anger that can be self annihilating and immolating and it'll just take down everything in its path and then there's anger to use your word anger that can be transformative that can that can spur us on to make different choices and become um different people so i think addressing grief is a very significant part of recovering from really very much about taking back our power because it, it is somewhat Disempowering uh, to be religious, to believe that uh, there is a being, a supreme being somewhere who's orchestrating everything. And this is why I also do not send my clients who are struggling with addiction. I never send them to AA. I don't send them to 12 step programs. I send them to a smart recovery, S M A R T, because I don't want them thinking that the responsibility or the power lies anywhere else outside of them. They are yeah. capable and they can do it. And so, taking back our power is an important part of uh, recovery when we've had religious trauma, too. Mm-hmm. And,
1: uh, and what you're referring to with the, with the AA thing is that if you go to Alcoholics Anonymous, then their 12 step program is very, very rooted in, in Christianity, right? Yep. It's about mm-hmm. recognizing a higher power and, and all of that. And mm-hmm. that can be counter, it can kind of counter the idea of actually empowering yourself.
2: Yes, and it's very disturbing to me that uh, so many recovery programs are actually run by churches, because I see that as people swapping one addiction for another. They're swapping yeah. their addiction to a substance. Uh, they're swapping that out for an addiction to religion. Yeah. So uh,
1: there, there's this um, other aspect of it. So what, what we see here, what we see, in, uh, for example, with, with Muslims, so young Muslims who leave Islam, um, it, it is a different experience for, for many of them. Uh, I have seen that initially, especially with, with Muslims who have been, because a lot of times these kids, they, they get, it's, it's heartbreaking. They, they, get, they get disowned by their families. They lose. So, so just the idea of, you know, freeing yourself from this ideology or just saying that, okay, I want to think differently about things. So I'm changing my mind about this one sort of belief system that that decision of just changing your mind asking questions or having doubts um is loaded you know with the burden of losing your family losing your childhood friends losing the community you grew up in all your childhood memories not not being able to go back to the neighborhood that you grew up in 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 a lot of cases because uh you know many of us who are here i i can't travel back to pakistan where where i grew up or or to Saudi Arabia, especially, you know, even though there are times that I want to, you have, you have associations with the places you grew up in, right? You don't want to lose them.
2: Well, and it's terrifying to think that you could lose your life. You could lose your life life because you You have decided to think for yourself. I am tremendously burdened for people who, who have the fortitude to walk away from Islam. Uh, I just, it's such a courageous, uh, Thing to do, and I really feel that we need to be able to somehow provide a lot more support for people who are in this situation.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. This is, I mean, what when I, when I wrote in my book is this is one of those situations where changing your mind can mean losing your head, quite yes. literally. I mean, oh there are people gosh. I have, uh, you know, I've, we have friends like Raif Badawi, you know, he's in jail, he's a blogger in, in jail in Saudi Arabia, and he hasn't seen his kids for uh, coming on eight years now. Wow. So it's just uh, the, the kind of things that, that people go through are are, are horrific uh, because they have to do this. But, but that's why it's such a big decision. And I feel um, I see this especially online from, you know, uh, when the new atheism movement uh, first came out, there was this, this idea that hey, this is true. This is not. You know, we're talking about rationality. We've got to think about it from a rational perspective. If you don't believe in it, why do you want to keep parts, parts of it with you? Just let the whole thing go. It's so easy. And and those people don't understand the costs. They don't understand that it really is like leaving your life behind. And you're not just building a new life and, and building a new, you have to figure out what to do with your career. You have to figure out what are you going to do with the children who've been raised a certain way. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I, We had, uh, you know, Ron Miscavige. uh, Yes, uh, Mm -hmm. this father of David Miscavige. David Miscavige is a head of the Church of Scientology. Mm -hmm. Right, he's a guy who was always hanging out with Tom Cruise. Yeah, his his dad actually got the whole family into Scientology. Wow. And then then he left. So he left the church, um, and his son's still leading it. He was. uh, We had an amazing conversation with him. Actually, he was uh, he was on the show as well. Yasmin was also on that. She was one of the people we all interviewed him together. Um, But you know, you you just uh, see this. uh, People go through so much. They have to. There's such a high cost
2: Mm -hmm. of
1: of letting go, and it's just not as simple
2: as as changing your mind. Yeah. Well, and and particularly when it's also cultural, like you were just describing. So I mean, I, I left I left Christianity, and I lost my Christian friends. But I didn't, you know, I could still get a job, you know, these sorts of things. But but when it is a part of your cultural heritage, I think it just makes it so much stickier.
1: Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's a much bigger challenge. And yeah. Have you had also, have you had clients or patients who are um, from Muslim backgrounds as well?
2: Not yet.
1: Not yet. Not well, yet. I, I hope you do now because I think yes. that you, a, a lot of... Uh, there is this thing, I, th- I think people from Muslim backgrounds who they, who think that, OK, well, if you're from a Christian thing, living in Canada, you may not understand. But I think hearing your story and hearing what you went through uh, and the way that you grew up, I think there are so many parallels. And I, I would encourage people who are listening to this um, who, who want to talk. Obviously, they're going to be in other places. Uh, do you do online? Um...
2: I do. All of my yeah. counseling work pretty much at this point um, is online. And I do have clients across North America and the United Kingdom as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm, my hours are pretty flexible. And my I have a Facebook group called the uh, Divorcing Religion Group. And it's a private group. People can ask to join it. And I do have one or two uh, former Muslims um, in there in that group and people from all different Backgrounds, uh, but I really I want to hear from people who've left Islam. I want to be able to learn from them and support them, however I can. We do have some similarities for sure, and the pain yeah the pain is the same. The pain of loss, the pain of having to start over.
1: Yeah, I was uh, there's this phenomenon. Uh, and your, your your website here I want I want to say is Panorama Counseling. That's right. That's counseling with two L, so P-A-N-O-R-A-M-A, dot uh, com. So panorama counseling. You can go to that if you're interested um in, in potentially reaching out to, to Janice. Mm-hmm. Um it, there's a sociological phenomenon called anomy. Um this is something that uh uh uh, I heard I mean I I I read about I also kind of uh wrote about uh, in, in the book as well, is where there's a, a bit of a pendulum swing. So you're raised very, very fundamentalists and then when you break out uh of it, then often like for example, uh with with Muslims, you know, I I've known like ex-Muslims who had just left a really repressive kind of household and family. And suddenly, everything they're eating has bacon on it. Right. Right. And uh, they are just yeah. the alcohol is off the charts. Yeah. You know, if they're uh, if if they grew up in a, a sort of a modesty culture environment where they have to wear the niqab and everything,
2: they got the uh, shorts. love the women. Works. Yeah.
1: Oh, they're doing it. They become very, very promiscuous, and it, yeah. it's a it's a yes. very it's an exploration that isn't always necessarily. Uh, healthy in the sense that it's not healthy to eat bacon with every meal, but um, it's it's healthy in the sense that I I think you know how you said that there was a gradual thing, um, you know you go to the more progressive side and then you try to you know you, you explore other things and eventually that's how you rebuild your identity so.
2: Uh, have
1: you experienced that with any of your or your clients and
2: i experienced it with myself i sure did i when i say my kids had a front row seat to the gong show that was my religious deconversion i mean they saw me it's you know i liken it to holding a beach ball under the water for too long when you take your hands off that thing flies up in the air water sprays everywhere um or maybe having a corset that's too tight and you're busting out of your corset. That's what it felt like for me. Uh, and of course my, my husband that I was married to, he didn't become a religious person until he was in his late teens. And so like my parents didn't until they were in their twenties. So they, their personalities had an opportunity to develop outside of religion. Mine did not. And so, um, Really, when I divorced religion, I told myself nothing was going to be off limits and just about nothing was. So I'm I'm glad that I um, that I am healthy, that I didn't get arrested. You know, I definitely <laughs> engaged in some pretty risky and risque uh, behaviors. Um, and it's like you say, I, I had to go all the way to the other end of the spectrum. And almost get a taste of what I didn't like, see what it would be like to live in the gutter and say, no, I'm worth more than that. Okay, I've tasted mm-hmm. not enough of that. I'm always now aiming for that elusive middle. I'm always yeah. looking for that uh, middle ground. But, you know, people who, a lot of people are able to leave religious fundamentalism, but they can't shake the fundamentalist thinking. And I see this a lot on social media uh, where then maybe they've left their religion, but now they're trying to tell me how to think and how to talk. Yeah, and yeah, and I, they really you know, want to come around and spank me for not falling into line. And that can actually that can be dangerous and detrimental, very, very harmful to people. And I see it just as uh, there hasn't been a full maturation there. They haven't quite grown up enough yet and got to the point where they realize they're still being fundamentalists.
1: Yeah, there there is a I th- I'm so glad you said that. that's a really good point. Um, there is an element of mindset. Uh, there are certain mindsets that people have, whether they're religious or not, uh, and it's interesting to see them go through that when they're. So, so a, a, an example actually is is my co-host on this show, and again, I don't want to speak for him too much because you know I, he'll he'll tear his hair out. You, those of you who know him know that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but Armin was, um, when he was religious, he was, right? Armin is very, very, he's a stickler for consistency, okay. logical consistency. That's, that's the way his mind works. I mean, this is at least my observation of how his mind works. So when he was religious, he had to make sense of everything. Even, even though his family wasn't super religious, he became very fundamentalist mm-hmm. as a teenager because he was reading the scripture He's like, you guys told me this is the word of God. Right. If everything in this is true, this hell thing sounds horrible. Why aren't you all doing everything you possibly can to avoid mm-hmm. yeah. going to hell? Wow. You know, it, it had to Kindred be consistent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, his, his story is, uh, if you go to the very first episode of this podcast, you know, you'll hear his story, which is pretty dramatic. Um, and then when he became, when he lost the religion, became an atheist, right? You know, now he, the same mindset persists, but it just navigates a different, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a different realm. It's a, you know, he's, he's, he's in a different field. Uh, he's here and he's still a, a stickler for rationality. I mean, what is one of the differences between me and him? I, mean, we're both sticklers for rationality, but um, for him, he's, he's very, very kind of uh Logical and very, very persistent, uh-huh. and it's a, mm-hmm. uh, and and that's I think one of the things I think about is uh, when people do, I guess, go to the other spectrum at the other end of the spectrum. Um, how do you navigate morality? I mean, your your morality has been kind of indoctrinated in you, yeah, right? or totally it's just not been, yeah, it hasn't been allowed to develop. So what right. you've done is. If you've been indoctrinated in a fundamentalist, you know Christian faith, Muslim faith, Islamic faith, you you grow up with a a, a, a an inherited secondary sense of morality where you're not yeah. thinking, "Is what I'm doing? Is this something I'd want to be done to me? Is this the right thing to do?" But you're thinking, "Well, what would God say?
0: Mm-hmm. Is there a
1: reward for this in heaven? Is there a punishment for this in hell?" So when that suddenly, after decades and and marriage and children and you're at a point and suddenly all of that stuff is taken away. Mm. Um what what do you do? How do you navigate morality? What what is your yardstick, your reference point yeah. to start with?
2: Well, you know, I used to have a bracelet that I wore that said W W J D, which was what would Jesus, Jesus do? Jesus do. Yeah. Except yeah. now it's just what would Janice do? Uh, I know. well that's really, a great coincidence <laughs> yeah I know that one that worked out well I still have a great one. Um I, I guess I've really just um, developed things my thinking more along uh, secular humanist lines so looking at uh, w- why do I want to do this thing what's the thing I want to do is it going to benefit or harm me is it going to benefit or harm other people
0: um
2: and those pretty much were my the only so the big one i had to grapple with um abortion that was a big one for me to think about homosexuality as i had no problem with at all nothing at all it's not an issue um but abortion i really had to think about and get to know people who supported um um choice you know, and find out why, you know, how did they deal with it? and Why did they think it was okay? So it's a lot of self-education. And then, of course, also, uh, afterlife was a big issue for me, too. And that was probably the hardest one for me to relinquish was my, especially having a child whose health is very perilous. So my girls are adults now. uh, But the 21 year old, you know, we're in the hospital a lot, um, and I know that <clears throat> she doesn't have the same life expectancy uh, that my other daughter has. Uh, and so to think about not getting to spend eternity with her, that's hard. That's pretty challenging. Yeah. But but as far as uh, making moral decisions, I feel like he, if you're a human and <laughs> you're a decent person, you're going to be capable of making decent decisions you know don't hurt animals don't hurt people D- mind your own freaking business uh, yeah. you, you're, you're allowed to you want people to give you room to be yourself and that means you have to give other people room to be themselves themself. i yeah. i don't spend a lot of time debating people who are still religious because it's fruitless they have to have their own epiphany as i had my own you know to break yeah. through that cockpit Dissonance, but in the meantime, I'll thank them not to try and dictate how I live my life.
1: Yeah, I I think um, that that's spot on. And and the thing that I struggled with the most, me personally, was the afterlife mm-hmm. aspect as well. And especially I knew like you know I I was I was I was in my twenties when I, I lost my father, and it was you know, we were close, and it was a it was a tough thing to think. I couldn't, you can't force yourself to believe something. Right. Right. But it was at that time, I wished at times like, Oh, I, I wish I believed in an afterlife. You know, I mm-hmm. was. it would be very comforting yes. for me to believe it. And that's a, it's, it's a really tough one that I think, uh, I actually feel like that is the one thing that us in the secular, rational atheist community uh, don't talk about enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I mm-hmm. think we just kind of say, "Well, you know, you're going to be in the ground. That's it. That's how it's going to happen." Right. And, right. you know, and you know, as as true as that might be, you know, or not, I, I don't. Nobody knows anything.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: it's just, um, you know, I I think of it. I I like to think of ways uh, to speak to people who are looking for that comfort. Um, you know,
2: you you might like another one of our speakers coming to court is named Dave Warnock, and Dave uh-huh. is uh, he was a pastor for decades. Uh, he's now an atheist, and he's dying of um, ALS of Lou Gehrig's disease, and oh. he he has launched a tour which he calls "Dying Out Loud," um, and he is traveling all over. The world talking to groups about what it's like to be dying and to be facing uh, death as an atheist, as someone wow. who had before really firmly believed in the afterlife. Um, and boy, talk about the, the rubber meeting the road. And he is just delightful. He is very funny. Of course, it's pretty Dark humor at this point of course, when talking of course. about death, but he's so refreshing, and I'm really glad that he can come because, as you say, it's a topic that we need to talk about. It's like one of the last uh, taboo topic that we yeah. don't tend to talk about is death, but it's so natural, and we've sanitized it to such a degree we don't even want our children attending funerals, and we don't even call it a funeral; we just call it a celebration of life. You know, there ha- we have to Hi, be this to- I think you. Fr- Oh,
1: sorry. I think I think you froze for a second okay. on my side. So just in case, can you just repeat the last part of what you said?
2: Um, sure. Let's see. Oh, that uh, we have uh, to a degree sanitized death and dying in North America, uh, such that we don't even want our children to attend funerals because we think it would be too much for them, or we don't even call it a funeral anymore. We just call it a celebration of life. But there's oh. actually value in seeing the body, seeing yeah. the body in the coffin, feeling the cold body, recognizing, I mean, you're still honoring the life that that person had, but you are saying this person is not here anymore. And as a Christian, we were told if there, we went to a funeral, uh, we don't grieve as the world grieves. That's what they would yeah. say all the time. We don't mourn as the world mourns because we're all going to be in heaven anyway. So dry your tears. And that completely invalidates and halts the grieving process right there, when you're told that you can't even grieve. You have to grieve.
1: Yeah, but that—that's a power that they have. I think with the, with with religion, one of the powers that it has, like like my aunt and, and her daughters, I mean, it, 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 there's a tremendous amount of comfort that comes into it. And and I talk to people about it. I, I think I'm like, well, you know, thirteen point eight billion years since the Big Bang, I, I wasn't there. You know, they 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 discovered oil in the desert. They landed on the moon. You know, Kennedy died. All these things happened. I I had no idea. It didn't affect me. And after I die, it'll be the same thing. I wouldn't be there to know that I don't exist. Uh, to me, that's comforting. But it took a while for me to find more comfort in that than the idea of of heaven and hell. There's also just uh, there, there's so many ways in which um, uh, I've thought about it. I think. That's a separate topic, and I think I think we might do a, another episode on this. Um, but uh, you know, I I I, I really I I'm th- sorry. What was the name of um, uh, the man that you? Oh, Dave about?
2: Dave Warnock, and his tour is called Dying Out Loud.
1: Dying Out Loud.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I I I think we need a lot more of that because this is by far one of the most common questions that that I get from from people who are religious. That, well, what are you, you going to do? What's going to happen after you die? Um, and it's a tough one. I mean, does that come up in your practice at all?
2: Um, yes, it does. And particularly for people, <clears throat> pardon me, who have lost someone dear to yeah. them. And, uh, you know, I've never been dead. I can't, and nobody else really can say what exactly happens after. But, you know, we can kind of, extrapolate and if you aren't if you think that the the bible is a collection of myths rather than you know something truthful um yes people need to think about these things and to be able to talk about them and we actually we do have another uh doctor who is an expert in grief and grieving she's going to be coming to the conference and she's talking about how toxic Theology leads to complicated grief. And yes, it really does. Yeah.
1: This this sounds like a, an absolutely phenomenal conference. That you know, it's just the the theme for it is is fantastic. And I really really hope everyone who can make it out there uh, makes it out there. <laughs> I, I I wanted to ask you two more questions. I know we're, we're sure. over an hour now, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> but it, there's just so many. Again, I have so many things to talk to you about. Uh, this always happens. Uh, first of all, uh, you know, you mentioned, cause we're talking about dying and, and so on, but you mentioned uh, your view on abortion and you said same sex marriage is not something that you had a problem with. So I, I, agree with that. I think that there's no, there's no secular argument against same sex marriage. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. I think it's, you know, it's just consensual adults. Uh, there's really no suffering, no harm done to anybody. Um, I, I have struggled with the abortion question. I mean, I'm I, I'm pro-choice. Uh, that's where I've landed uh, eventually, uh, but I don't think it's as easy a question as same-sex marriage. I think I mean, there are many secular groups uh, that talk about abortion as a as a difficult issue. I, I, for me, it's, it's clear. I think that there's you know you can't force human beings to give birth. You just can't do that. You know. You, you can't tell them what to do with their bodies. Uh, but at at the same time, I do respect the argument, even if I don't agree with it. I do respect the argument of the pro-life side, uh, who argue that, I mean, if you're looking at it from a libertarian perspective, and you consider a, a fetus or an embryo to be a human being, right? then um, that human being has rights as well, and, and to kill that human being would be considered murder from their point of view. I, again, I, I don't agree with it, but I, I get where it's coming from. So you having having been on, uh, I don't know, are, are you pro-choice now? Or?
2: Yes, yeah, absolutely uh, pro-choice. Um, but I, I understand the struggle. Yeah, you know? I mean,
1: having been, I, I guess I was wondering, having been on the other side of the argument, Mm-hmm. Uh, on the pro life side and and now being pro choice and acknowledging that you you struggled with that that transition mm-hmm. um, is there anything specific or any argument that you found particularly compelling uh that that brought you to the pro choice side
2: For me, it was partly um, embracing uh feminism, which certainly i had never been part of my life um Mm -hmm. and and even now at the weirdest times i'll suddenly feel like oh i have to be quiet or i should be submissive or i really shouldn't say that or i'll let the man eat first or whatever the thing is right and so part of it involves still growing and shaking myself trying to shake myself free of those beliefs that that were just thrust uh upon me and and fed to me for my whole life and once i started looking at the unfairness of a female just because she's a female being forced to carry uh a, essentially a, a parasite because you know your babies live off you while they're growing right yeah, and that's, that's yeah. right and i i have to so they are parasites
1: well well after <laughs> birth they continue to be <laughs> yeah. parasites <laughs> That's not, that doesn't
2: change <laughs> draining the bank account um yeah, yeah so uh it, part of it was my own um growth as a female human and actually my my partner and i am uh, bisexual quite happily uh, and i explored that after my divorce as well uh, my partner currently is a male and he's a jew he's a reformed jew mm-hmm. and he is like the strongest feminist I've ever met. He is so egalitarian; it is hilarious. Like I went with him one time to his to his synagogue, and they're they're all reading out yeah. of this same book that they have. And every time they're saying "God," he he's yelling out "She, she!" <laughs> to get us kicked out, you get us kicked out. Um, but but he's been a, a really big help to me as well, and just uh-huh. embracing. The person that I am and that I'm allowed to be free and think my own thoughts and that's what I do
1: yeah no that's uh, and, and it's it's just so uh, it is really interesting to ask these questions um, and finally so you mentioned uh the, the gentleman with the dark human the humor the uh who's touring Dave. the the dying out loud yeah yeah and 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 you do you know we mentioned at the start of this that you also comedy um it's just a, a great way to deal with so many different things um have you I, I guess both personally in your life and uh in your practice as well you know do you see the value and, and having being somebody who who enjoys comedy and does comedy herself uh, do you uh what is the value of humor when it comes to dealing with difficult questions like this or dealing with religion or criticizing religion where do you put humor in your life what role does it have
2: I would say it is so important and it really is one of the hallmarks of maturity we have to be able to laugh at ourselves and there's this you know, old quote from the Roman times or the Greek times or something, and it says, uh, "Life is a tragedy for those that feel, and a comedy for those that think." And mm, I and and I, I agree with that. that. Yeah. I I can totally relate <laughs> to that, and I think humor is just a wonderful, healthy way for us to uh, to cope sometimes, mm. and also for me. Um, one thing we share a lot of in my, uh, online group, the divorcing religion group on Facebook, a lot of memes, religious memes, things that we would have found sacrilegious before. And now we look at them and we're just tears are coming down the cheeks cause we're laughing and going, I can't believe I, I bought into that so wholeheartedly. Of course, this aspect or that aspect is ridiculous. We have to be able to poke fun at ourselves sometimes, and and at some sacred cows, too. Yeah. So I find humor uh, very important.
1: Yeah, and your friend Courtney heard who was on this on the last episode of this podcast, <laughs> I mean, she's got she's like a meme machine. I mean, the I stuff that she her. has, I know. I'm always like taking <laughs> screenshots of of everything she posts, and I'm sending it to people. It's just absolutely hilarious. Uh, do you? Do stand up
2: or, uh, you stand-up or you do you perform at all? I, I do sit down. if, if you, oh, you saw, do sit if, down. If you watch the <laughs> Georgie and Glow videos, you see that they were all, I was pretty much sitting down uh, most of the time. Um, I sometimes attend stand-up. I've never done stand-up myself. The humor I prefer definitely is witty humor. I'm not a real fan of vulgar um, humor. I just don't find that really funny. Some people mm-hmm. do. But uh, if I find a, a comic that just is tickling my funny bone, really they're understanding humanity and how humanity works and how ridiculous we are. That's my favorite type.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I completely agree with you. <laughs> this is, yeah. Um, I, uh, for, for me, a lot of this, uh, you know, when I was having doubts about religion and uh, one of the things that really got me going is it's, I just found out really early on that if you, within my family, even within my Muslim family and so on, before I actually told them I was an atheist, I found that if I joked about it, it got the message through in a way that it wouldn't if I had a serious discussion about it. You yeah. could get away with so much. And I, I would listen to, you know, I, I listened to George Carlin a yes. lot, and George Carlin was one of the first. Like oh, he yeah. was just brutal. He was yeah. completely. He would skewer religion in front of religious audiences. It was forbidden be,
0: in our house.
1: Yeah, and he, <laughs> he would. People would be laughing their asses off. And I had the I had the honor of meeting his daughter Kelly Carlin, who cool. does show up at a lot of his uh, conferences. So, and she she's great too. I, I, there's just, and you know, well, him. There, there's so many different comedians. I I think with stand up comedy, you know, atheism has always been. Or Ricky Gervais is another one. Oh my god. <laughs> Yeah, so they're so these are. It's so good to have these people, you know, as a Bill Maher and so on, like just out there and and doing it in a, in a way that is that everybody kind of gets and that's that's sort of accepted.
2: Yes, and also because uh, if you were raised in a fundamentalist home, like if you were indoctrinated from childhood, you your personality was hijacked and your sense of fun was probably smashed out of you and replaced with your, a sense of duty and responsibility. Like there was not a lot of laughter in my house when I was growing up. So we were, uh, I had to be about my father's business. That means always with a heavenly mind looking at who could I witness to. Um, and so there wasn't a lot of fun. And I think, uh, that's one reason I'll just say it that I really enjoy doing mushrooms because they make me laugh my ass off. (laughs) I I just, I just, (laughs) there's so much laughter in there that still has to come out from all those decades of suppressing it. Um, so I really go the extra mile trying to make myself laugh and trying to make other people laugh sometimes too.
1: That's great. Well, I, I just keep laughing and keep (laughs) being funny and keep doing everything that you're doing. I, I think that just all, all of the stuff you're doing, whether it's the, it's the counseling or the humor, or the comedy, telling your story, the conference that you're doing, all of these things are just, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm already a huge fan. So, you know, thank you very much for, for coming on. I'm going to, again, uh, the online Divorcing Religion Workshop is divorcingreligion.com. The conference with, oh, wow, every, everybody's, I mean, you're there, Nate Phelps is there, Yasmin Mohammed's there. It's uh Court 2020. <coughs> Excuse me. C O R T 2020.com. And your counseling website is panoramacounseling.com with two L's. Yes. Um, and you are on on Twitter. Can you tell everybody your Twitter handle so they can find you?
2: Sure. I'm on Twitter. I have two accounts. One is at divorce religion and the other one is at wise underscore counselor the counselor has two l's and i'd also like to tell you that uh we are happy to give a discount to any of your listeners who want to attend the conference i'm going to give you a code uh that you can pass along to them and they'll get 60 dollars off a ticket for regular ticket price
1: that is a good deal so everybody <laughs> you know everyone who's listening to this uh, you heard it you get 60 dollars off of the ticket price uh, for the court the 2020 conference and um, yeah, just, just get in touch and just reach out and let us know. Well, you know, uh, for those of you who don't know, you can, you can reach us at secular jihadist at gmail.com. Uh, we're there. Uh, you can also just go to secular jihadist.com or patreon.com slash secular jihadist. Uh, and you know, you can, you can support us for as little as a dollar a month. If, you can't pay, that's perfectly fine. Uh, share the the, the episodes on your, on your social media timeline. Give us an iTunes review. Everything helps. Um, so, yeah, thanks to everybody who's listening. Uh, do consider signing up as a patron. And thank you so much, Janice, for,
2: for coming on again. What a pleasure. Uh, it's just been a delight. Thank you so much. I hope you do come to the conference. I'd love to meet you in person.
1: Yeah, no, no, I'm going to. Yeah. It's in April. Yeah, absolutely. You get $60 off. Yeah, I know. I got it. I got it. So, we're going to post all of this information that's in the description. If you're listening to this on audio, just whenever you go, just look in the description. All the links and everything are there for it. Okay. All right, Janice. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, thanks. And uh, thanks, everybody.
0: The secular jihadists have been made possible thanks to the Illuminati and the covert support of Israel and the CIA. That's what we have been told, but we haven't received our checks yet. If you like what we do, please support us. Share the podcast with your friends. Write and tweet us with topic and guest suggestions. Or head over to secularjihadist.com and give a dollar or more for exclusive access to live video. Have your questions read and answered on the air and more. Till next time, may the flying spaghetti monster be with you.